So, you know, uh, we do have an opportunity here. Larry, is Randy with you? We guys could do improv, right? Have you guys ever done an improv skit before? I could just bring you up here, give you a scene and a setting, and see what you guys could pull out. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, it's wonderful to have you all with us. I think good to have you with us again, Larry. You know, this, uh, this Easter thing's coming up again. It's such an exciting time of year, and we get to do the community engagement through this extravaganza. So I really want to also just encourage you to consider how you can support that with your donations and with your time as well. The time day's coming up. Because spring's coming, Easter's coming, however, we still find ourselves at the tail end of February. And I came across an article this week that caught my attention. It was called The 19 Reasons That Mid-February Is Hands Down The Most Depressing Time of Year. So that's an exceptionally long title. But it pointed out some really good reasons, actually, that this is considered to be a tough time of year for a lot of people. For example, uh, one thing they listed was the fact that snow is not exciting anymore. Right? Can we agree with that? There was this time back in the fall when it was like, oh, the first snowfall came, and it's kind of nice, and we want it for Christmas, but by the time you hit mid-February, enough is enough. We're done with the snow. Hopefully, we're going to get any more big dumps coming our way. Another reason I brought up is temperature. February basically is the, from around North America, is the coldest month of the year, and so we have to endure cold during February, and that also... To go along with that, people who live in Kelowna are really annoying this time of year when they tell us about their temperature down there. Uh, A third reason, everybody is sick. I dare you to try and not get sick in February. It's tough to do in this month. Uh, Another reason that February is the worst, most depressing time of year is that our hope is based upon a rodent. Whether it be (laughs) Puxatoni Phil or Balzac Billy for the Canadian audience, we, uh, we hope for an early spring, and our hope is based upon if he sees his shadow or not. Uh, another thing people encounter is we're, we're sick of Googling warm places we could go to but can't afford to get to. So we have to put that off. Maybe, maybe after the tax refund comes back, we can, we can head off to those places. Uh, we've binged all the good things to watch on Netflix. There's just nothing left on Netflix to watch. And then the final one that I pulled out of here is that we still have to deal with March. Uh, March sounds like it should be spring. It sounds like it should be warm, but we know it's going to be cold, and we know it's probably going to snow again. And so February just gets even worse, knowing that we still have March to get into. But whether a person is down due to a a seasonal issue that's going on, or if it's a stress from another personal situation that's happened in their lives, or maybe, maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm not down, it's February, February is awesome. I'm over the moon with what's going on in my life right now. Regardless of where you find yourself at, we all have experienced the reality that our feelings, whether that be mad, sad, or glad, or somewhere in between those, has an effect on the people around us. And we know this in different settings we're in. For example, if if you're at an office, working in an office, and it's somebody's birthday, everybody in the office is happy. Maybe you're happy because you like Deb in accounting, and you, you like her, and you want to celebrate her birthday with her. Or maybe you don't like Deb in accounting, but it's her birthday, which means there's cake, and who doesn't like cake, right? So the cake makes us happy. Or even at home, maybe if mom and dad are, are fighting and the kids kind of pick up on it, there, there's a tension around the household. We even see this in sports, for example, where if one person on a team gets a penalty, the whole team is affected because now the whole strategy of the team changes because now we're on the penalty kill because of one guy. Now, for each of these examples, we learn the truth of the phrase, for better or worse, we're all in this together. For better or worse, we're all in this together. And we experience that in the church community as well. 
Because here in the church, we are a collection of individuals, each with our own stories. We each come with an individual background, nationality, spiritual experiences, struggles, sins, victories. Each of us are unique individuals, but we celebrate, and we celebrate that diversity and we embrace the uniqueness that each of us brings. But at the same time, we are a unified whole. Paul refers to this by calling us a body of believers, where we are made up of different parts, each with our own role to play within the body. But even though we have our own roles to play, we're not individuals because each of us impact the other. And so when the body is healthy, when you're eating your fruits and vegetables and staying away from the carbs, you feel good. But when the body gets sick, it starts to steal energy. And if that goes on long enough and the sickness isn't addressed, it can actually lead to a point of death. Now, last week, we left the Israelites following a successful battle of Jericho. They're feeling good. They're healthy at that moment. But they're about to soon realize that during the battle, they actually picked up a virus. They picked up a virus that made the body sick. And it threatened the entire nation. And we read about this in Joshua chapter 7. And so if you want to get your Bibles out or your phones and turn to Joshua chapter 7, if you haven't got one with you, you can grab a pew Bible in front of you as of today. And on page 173, you will find Joshua chapter 7 in there. And you can follow along with us. And we see here that this is the story of a man named Achan. And Achan committed a sin. But the impact of his sin was not limited to himself alone. You see, like many of us who have experienced different seasons of sin and and guilt around that, Achan tried to hide his sin because he thought, you know what, it's my personal thing. I'll just keep it to myself and it won't affect anybody but me. So he keeps it to himself and he hides it. But there's a problem. The problem is a proverb that says something along the lines of, your sin will find you out. And here's how the story goes. After defeating Jericho, Joshua sets his eyes to the next strategic location, a small town about 15 miles up the mountain, just east of Bethel, called A. We're going to do that. We're going to, this, it's pronounced different ways, but today we're going to pronounce it the way Fonzie did in Happy Days. We're going to call it A, right? So it's a small town called A, okay? And it was thought that it's sort of a small outpost with a small amount of supplies and troops that was there to support Bethel. Now, this was good military sense to go after A, because it was in the heartland of the region, and it was on high ground, and all major roads kind of went through that area. So Joshua sends spies to go check out this area and to determine the strength of the force that's needed to go take the town of A. So they come back, and they say, good news, Joshua, limited guards, limited people there. We only need to send a few troops. So Joshua decides that he'll send 3,000 troops more than enough to look after the job. And besides, numbers are on our side, momentum's on our side, the people of the land are terrified of us, this should be more than enough to make the point and capture this small town. But to everyone's surprise, this small band of defenders, people who are defending A, they end up overpowering the Israelites. They kill 36 of their troops, they push them back down the mountain, all the way back to the camp, and they defeat this Israel army of 6,000 men. Now, they don't know what to make of this at first because Joshua and the elders are just devastated that this has happened. So they tear their clothes and and they fall face down before the ark of the Lord and they lay there all day just grieving what's happened, thinking, thinking, what does this mean? What are we going to do now? We we lost this seemingly simple battle. And so Joshua cries out to God. He goes, God, 
Why did you ever bring us across the Jordan? Why, just to make us victims? You brought us across so you could just wipe us out? Why didn't we just stay where we were? Why didn't we just stay on the other side of the Jordan? You know, God, when, when people get wind of this, they're going to gang up on us, they're going to kill us, and then what will happen to your reputation, God? You know, not since the previous generation that was sentenced to wander in the wilderness had God been accused of such things. Not since that previous generation had he heard such grumbling against him. But God responds to this because he has no patience for Joshua's blame game and for his whining. And so for like a, like a fed up parent, he looks at Joshua and he looks at him and he goes, get up, what's wrong with you? The moms and dads, have you ever had a two-year-old on the floor of the grocery store? And you just go, get up, what's wrong with you? So he continues by saying, Israel has sinned. Like they've broken this covenant that I've made with them. Do you remember what I said? I told them, don't take any of the plunder when you defeat Jericho. Well, guess what? They did. And there were goods in your camp that were stolen from me, Joshua, and I can't move forward with you until it's dealt with. Now, you may recall last week that in Joshua chapter 6, in, in the story of the fall of Jericho, that before the walls fell on the seventh day. God warned the army. He said this in Joshua 6, verse 17 through 18. He said, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab and all who are with her in her house are to be spared. But keep away from the devoted things so that you do not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will, be ma- Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. Now, what's happening here is God is evoking this thing called harem, H-E-R-E-M, harem, which is a word that means to plunder, or more specifically, to devote to destruction. Basically, whatever God has designated harem, whatever God has designated devoted to destruction, whether it be cities, nations, people, goods, it's understood that it is now owned by him, Therefore, he has the authority to decide what its use is and what its fate is going to be. And in the case of Jericho here, he has declared Jericho and all that is within it, all the living things within it and all the material within it, he has declared it all harem, all devoted to destruction because he owns it and he has declared it. Now, at first, you might think that this is sort of a judgment against the evil practices of the people of Jericho. And that would be a natural conclusion because these were people who did practice very evil pagan beliefs and rituals. But it's, something else is happening here. It's actually more of a protection for Israel. A protection against anyone or anything that could potentially lead Israel astray. Anything that is a threat to him of that nature needs to be removed to protect Israel. So God declares everything in Jericho to be his, his right to deal with it. It's all devoted, therefore, to destruction. But Achan plunders some of it during the battle of Jericho. He takes some of it for himself. He hides it. And he doesn't steal from Jericho. He's actually stealing from God. And he brought sin among his people by doing so. Now, this is not the final judgment for Israel. God provides a means of resolution. And so he orders Joshua to do this. He says, I want you to have all of the people gather together. You tell them what's going on. You tell them what's happened. And then I want them to consecrate themselves. I want them to sort of 
cleanse themselves, purify themselves, because tomorrow they're all going to come together and appear before me, and we're going to cast lots, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, person by person, to determine who the guilty person is that has done such a thing. Now, this idea of casting lots was, was done by the priest who would have a bag around his neck that had two stones and a black stone and a white stone. And so that each tribe came forward. For example, maybe the, maybe the tribe of, of, um, of Judah came forward. And the priest would pray. He would reach into the bag and he'd pull out a stone. White stone, you're innocent. Black stone, you're guilty. It, it was, it's the equivalent to the modern-day flipping of a coin, just a much more divine way to determine direction of God with these different aspects of guilt upon the tribes and upon the people. So this is what happens. They come before the priests. They all come together, and then one by one, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, person by person, they come forward till eventually the numbers are whittled down, and one man is left standing. And that man's name is Achan. And so Joshua gives him the opportunity to confess. He says, no, my son, God has found you guilty do not lie any longer. What have you done? And Achan, being found out, stops his hiding. And he says, it's true. It's true. I have sinned against God. He acknowledges his sin is against God. He said, I was fighting in Jericho, and, and I saw this, this beautiful Babylonian robe. And I saw 200 pieces of silver, and I saw this gold bar, and I desired them. So I took them. And I dug a hole under my tent, and I hid them. Now Joshua, hearing this, sends some of his trusted men to Achan's tent to confirm all of this. And they, sure enough, they come back with all of the goods. And so now the whole nation looks on, and Joshua orders that Achan and his family and his possessions be taken to a nearby valley where the assembly appears again. And as they're all gathered around Achan again, who's down in this valley, Joshua says to him, why have you brought trouble upon us? Because of you, we've been defeated in battle. Because of you, good men have died. Because of you, God, who we need to guide us through this season of life to go on ahead of us, has removed himself from us. And they sentenced him to death. And the whole nation of Israel stoned Achan, his family, and his livestock. And as those stones start to create a pile, the Israelites completed by, by heaping up large boulders to create the third monument that they would build in this new land. And just like all the other monuments in the land, it's a reminder to future generations of God's holiness. It's a reminder of his sovereignty over all things. But to those who looked on, it's also a reminder that for better or worse, we're all in this together. Now I'm going to pause for a little commercial break here. Because before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge something. I want to acknowledge that that what happens at the city of Jericho, the, the assault on the city of Jericho, what happens in this story with Achan and his family being stoned to death is a difficult passage. This isn't, this isn't easy things to read about, about, about people being wiped out in such fashion. You know, it feels at times like the amount of violence is excessive and, and, and rather harsh. And it feels that way for a lot of people within the church community, but I can guarantee you it feels that way for a lot of people outside of a faith community as well. Because this idea that God could command what really amounts to a genocide is a barrier for what keeps some people from fully trusting in God. This is a real situation for a lot of people when they read the events of the Old Testament. 
They think to themselves, was this slaughter really necessary? Was Israel's faith really that fragile? And, and, and what does this say about God's moral character if he would be okay with this and if he would order this? Now, we're not able to address all these questions today, but there are important things that we do need to talk about and we do need to address in our own selves, but also in our ability to communicate with those around us. Because if we don't talk about them, we won't be equipped when the world around us wants to talk about them. And I can tell you that they are. These are things, these are questions that the world around us has when they read passages like this. So here's what I want to suggest we do. Following the Easter weekend, we're going to launch a, a short sermon series. And for a few Sundays, we're going to spend our time in a series called Pastor 411. Now, most cities you go to, if you need some directory assistance, you can take out your phone, dial 411, and you can get an operator who will give you the information you need for what you're looking for. So for a few weeks following Easter, we're going to give you the opportunity to call Pastor 411 to get the information you may need in the things you are encountering in your lives in the world around you. So we want to help you, but we need you to respond to us for the next few weeks. So we're going to invite you to email me, to take a connection card, and to fill that in with, with a question, with a comment, with a challenge, whether that be a theological principle you have never quite got your head fully around. Maybe it's a social issue you're running into in your, in your workplace or in your school. You're not sure how do you enter into it. How do you respond to it? What is a way to, to deal with that? Perhaps a passage of scripture or a topic you find, such as violence in the Old Testament, has been troubling for you. Send that to us, and we're going to collect all these together, and then we're going to spend a few Sundays following Easter responding to these submissions. Each week, we're probably going to grab, you know, two, three, four of these and discuss them uh, from the platform here during the sermon time to help provide some insight and direction for you to the things that you're thinking about, the things maybe you're struggling with, and the things that you're facing in the world out there. So we invite you to do that, starting this Sunday, to email or to put those in on connection cards and submit them to me and the other pastors, and we'll put those together and address them. Because remember, for better or worse, we're all in this together. So we need to work on these things together. Now, as you hear that phrase, I really hope that it brings to you a sense of joy and excitement for the better, because this is a great church. This is a healthy church, not perfect, I'm not going to go overboard on this. It's, it's not a perfect church. There's no such thing. But we are a healthy body that is on track for an exciting future. But just like our human bodies, if we don't look after ourselves, there's no guarantee that we're going to stay healthy. And like the Israelites, we could pick up a virus along the way that affects the whole body and could take us out of the game for a while. So if we're going to be vigilant about this, if we're going to be looking after the, the body of believers here at West Meadows, the first thing that we need to understand is that we are not on our own. You're not on your own. You know, there's this prevailing attitude in Western society that emphasizes upon individualism, where it seeks to put the self first. It might say things like, I'm only responsible for me and my actions. The, the greater collective, the, the greater community out there, that's secondary to what I'm responsible for. However, I think if we practically look at the actual lives that we live, we'll find something very different. For example, has anybody else here lost any sleep watching the Olympics these past two weeks? Just me? Am I the only one? Anybody else stay up too late to watch the women get the silver medal? Get up too early to watch the men get the bronze medal? Right? Why did we do that? Well, we did it because a couple of men and a couple of women put on a maple leaf. 
And when people don that maple leaf, it means something to us. Because like Canada Joe says, we are Canadian. And so we will get up and we will watch games in the middle of the night because it's part of an identity that we feel within ourselves as Canadians. We also see this idea of the collective versus the individual in social media, the rise of social media, where people face their li- uh, post their lives to Facebook and to, uh, to Snapchat. But we don't just pace them. We then sit there anxiously waiting to see how many likes am I going to get, right? And we're stressed over how many likes we get. We refresh the app every 10 seconds to see how many likes do we get. Did I get another one? Did I get another one? Did I get another one? And, and if we don't get at least 10 likes in 15 minutes, we start sweating, We start sweating and fear starts to set in. Have I done something wrong? Nobody's liking my app that I put up there. And we're seeking this group validation to the point where if we don't have enough likes after 20 minutes, we'll delete the post out of fear of becoming a social outcast because of something we posted to social media. But we see this in our TV shows we watch as well. Consider the top TV shows from each of the decades going back to the 70s. What do you think the top TV show in in the 70s was? Any suggestions? All in the Family is in the top five. Yep. Number one, one of the biggest viewed conclusions of all time was MASH. So MASH is number one show of the 70s. What about the 80s? What do you think the number one show in the 80s was? Cheers. Said, I heard somebody say Cheers of the 80s. What about the 90s? Seinfeld and Friends were top two, pretty close. Yeah, Seinfeld and Friends for the 90s. And in the 2000s, one of Ryan's favorites, the Office. <laughs> the Office. Now, what does MASH, Cheers, Friends, Seinfeld, The Office all have in common? All of these are stories that center around a group of people who are doing life together in different settings. And they all are stories that reveal, from every episode of every single one of those series, they are stories that reveal the fact that for better or worse, they are all in it together. So for the very last episode of MASH, when the war ends, they all celebrate together. And then when bad things happen, like when Ross and Rachel break up, the whole community is affected. That's the nature of these shows that we tend to gravitate towards. You see, viewing ourselves as a community and accepting the reality that for better or for worse, we impact upon each other is not just in line with the world that we see around us or with what we feel inside. It's not just in line with the story of Achan that we reviewed today. It also is a theme that runs throughout Scripture and is very prominent in our theology. In fact, it's a major part of what would be referred to as a Christian worldview. This idea of the one impacting the corporate whole. Let me show you a couple of examples. One of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture, John 3.16. We see this. For God so loved the world, corporate perspective, that he gave his one and only son, individual, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The corporate being affected by the whole. But then Paul takes this principle, and in Romans 5, he expounds upon it and relates the same idea to humanity's sin problem and God's solution to it. When he says this in Romans 5, For just as through the disobedience of one man, individual, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous." You see, there's a key assumption in this, in this theology, in this Christian worldview, there's a key assumption that underlines Paul's theology, is that each person is a representative of a whole group that exists. All humanity sinned when Adam sinned, all humanity benefits when Christ dies and rise again. Now, this collective worldview clearly undergirds Paul's theology. 
And that perspective also explains some of the things that we find in the story of Achan and his impact, the impact of his sin upon the whole community. But it also informs us as a church. It informs us as a church that for better or worse, we're all in this together. So when the people of God are brought together, there's this mystical unity that takes place where we get referred to as a body. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses this metaphor of, of the body to describe the church. Now, as mentioned earlier, when the body is healthy, it feels good. It has strength. It has lots of energy. It, it, can, it can accomplish many things. But when the body is sick, it doesn't function as well. And if that sickness isn't dealt with and is serious enough, it can actually lead to death. So when the church is healthy and strong, it celebrates unity. It celebrates diversity. And as it says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 18, that God has placed the parts of the body, every single one of them, just the way he wants it to be. So there's many different parts. There, there's feet, hands, ear, eyes, appendixes, whatever those are for. But they're all part of the body. All are needed. All are equally appreciated. Likewise, here at West Meadows, we're a diversity of people, all different parts of this body that has been brought together. Our own unique histories and talents, abilities, passions, resources, giftings, and we're not here by accident. As it says in that verse, in verse 18, we've been brought together just as God wants it to be, which is part of the reason that the next committee is spending so much time examining this question of what's called our collective potential is based upon this verse in verse 18 because God has brought it together the way he wants it to be. And if he wants it to be a way, it's for a purpose, for a reason that he's been creating. But if the church is going to fulfill its mission, then we have to intentionally deal with any of the Achans that may appear that could steal that vitality from us. Now, not in the same way Israel did. I'm not suggesting that we start rounding people up and stoning them. That is not going to happen. That's not going to be part of our, our Easter celebration we're going to be having. But just letting you know, it's safe. We're safe here. Okay. But we do need to take sin seriously. We do need to address sin when we encounter it. Now, very generally, very briefly stated, sin is anything we do or anything we don't do that falls short of God's character and of his will. See, it's not just things that we do. There's also sins of omission. There's things that we should have done that we don't do that are sinful because those also fall short of God's will and of his character. Now, this can apply to us individually, but can also apply to us corporately as a church where when the church falls short of God's character, when the church falls short of God's will, that also is a sin that we have to be on guard against as a body of believers. Now, from the example of Achan, we receive a warning against these things, and we need to understand that we have a personal and a corporate responsibility to protect the body. Because as Paul reminds us, as he wraps up the description of the body in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as he tells us there, he says, when one part suffers, every part suffers with it. When one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. What does that mean? What he's saying in 1 Corinthians 12 is that for better or worse, we're all in this together. We celebrate together, we suffer together. So briefly, as we move towards a time of closing here, there's three characteristics of the community that if we can create these, 
if we can create these things, foster them and develop them and protect them within this body of believers, we can, by, by outcome, actually build an Aiken detection system brought to you by Alarm Force, this Aiken detection system that we can have upon the church building. And here they are, very quickly. Number one, we need to trust enough to confess our sins to each other. We need to trust enough to confess our sins to each other. James talks about this in chapter 5, verse 16 of the letter he wrote, where he says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, I know this is so much easier said than done. It's not an easy thing to confess our sins to each other. Most of us are terrible at this because there's this thing within us called pride that tells us it's not safe to risk your reputation by confessing your faults. All of us wrestle with that to to some degree. Most of us do to a large degree. There's this thing of pride that keeps us from doing it. And in most cases, this confession should not take place the way it did with Achan, where where he's brought before the entire assembly of the church. That's not the proper setting for a lot of confession to take place. That can actually do more harm to the individual, more harm to the whole body than good. That's not the setting for those things. Where confession happens best and where it's recommended to happen is when the groups start to get smaller, when the groups start to get more intimate. The, the intimate is not a word we would use for a Sunday morning gathering. It, it's just too broad. There's too many. It's too big. But when we start to get into smaller groups, things get a little more intimate, a little more personal. There's a greater sense of trust that builds. There's a greater sense of familiarity amongst one another. This is one of the roles that our life groups play within the body of the church, is to help groups get a little smaller, more connected, more personal, more intimate, more familiar, greater trust, so that we can do some of these important steps in our spiritual development, like confessing sins to one another. Now, even a group of 12 in a home group might seem like too much for that, and that's okay. That's why within those groups, sometimes you might have an affinity with, with one or two other guys in the group. And so then, if you're a guy, not for a lady, but if one of the guys, just put that caveat in there. So uh, if one of the guys in the group might have an affinity with one or two other guys in the group, and that creates a bit of a triad where there can be some sharing that takes place. Again, the group gets smaller. The smaller it gets, the more intimate, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to confess these things. It's one of the roles these groups play. Now, if that's something you need, we have new groups that get started throughout the year, and we want to hear from you so we can help you get plugged into them. But we also need leaders. If you feel like that is something that is a passion of your heart, helping people get connected, helping people get more intimate in those groups so they can walk with Christ into a deeper way, if that's something you would like to be a part of in a leadership level, we want to hear from you as well because we need to constantly be bringing new groups out to bring in the demand that exists for people who want to get into smaller life group community. But this is one of the best places where you're going to find that ability to know and be known and have a greater chance of breaking through the pride to confess our sins to one another. And there's great power in doing so. Great power on two reasons. Number one, the enemy loves to make you think you're on your own. And the enemy loves to make you think that nobody would understand. Nobody would accept you. You better not share that or you are out of the community. But that is the lie of the enemy. That is one of his greatest lies is to separate you from the herd so that you are on your own and that you are vulnerable. We need to stay in community if we're going to stay strong. We need to get into smaller community if we're going to be able to confess these things and defeat that lie that keeps us from bottling up these sins and these dark areas of our lives so that the freedom and the light of Christ can come in and can heal them and can free us from them. 
This isn't just a... This isn't just a to-do item on the person's calendar. Life groups are so vitally important to discipleship, to growing in your understanding of what it means to be Christ-like, of what that looks like to go deeper with him. It's not just another to-do list item. But then also these, these groups are so vitally important because they allow us to share our sins, to confess them so that people can pray over them. And if we were to continue reading in this passage in James 5, he talks about the power, the healing power of prayer. That when we confess these things to one another, we then have people who can join us in praying for them. Which is not just me inviting a buddy to come into this with me so that I can share with my buddy. It's me and my buddy inviting God to come into it so that we can deal with it together. Personally and spiritually and find freedom and wholeness through confessing our sins to one another. It's one of the things that we can do. A second thing is that we can tell each other the truth. Seems too simple. Tell each other the truth, but Paul alludes to this in Ephesians 4, verse 15, where he says, Speak the truth in love, and we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ Jesus. At first glance, this might seem like a a really logical, simple, agreeable one. Yeah, telling the truth, that's a good idea. Don't lie. I learned that when I was three. Don't lie. That's a good idea. But if we step back for a second and consider many of the conversations we have around the church, we may not be lying in sort of an overt fashion, kind of these bold-faced lies where it's like, how big was your fish? Uh, Was that big? Right? Or if mom comes up to you, did you eat the cookie out of the cookie jar? You got crumbs all over your face, crumbs in your shirt. No, I didn't touch the cookie. I'm not talking about those kinds of lies. Sometimes we do these other kinds of lies that are more covert, like like pleasant diplomacy or, or happy facades that we shield ourselves from things. Or, or he might say things like, no, I love your tuna casserole. You should bring that every potluck. That's wonderful. See, th- these, are, these are lies too. They're, they're innocent. They're little white lies. But, but they protect, they, they put up this barrier between perhaps some truth that needs to be shared. Now, I'm not suggesting we have this pendulum swing in the other direction where we just start calling people out in the foyer where a pastor wants truth, officers, I'm going to give him some truth. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not this big pendulum swing back over this way. Because remember, Paul is directing us to speak truth, but to speak truth in a loving way, right? So, first of all, if something needs to be said to somebody, let's say it. Step into those deeper waters. Have that harder conversation. Say what you think needs to be said. Enter into that conversation, but do so in a way that is respectful. Do so in a way that shows love and care for the greater body and for that individual who is a representative of the body of which you also belong. So we need to have these conversations when the time comes up. But we need to do so in a loving way, in a caring way, and in one that shows compassion so that we can stay unified. But there's this third one, is to hold each other accountable. Because remember, I've said it a few times, for better or worse, we're all in this together. So we need to hold each other accountable because if you're doing something that I don't hold you accountable to it, that has an impact upon not just you, not just upon your family, but possibly the whole church body and myself. So I have a personal and a corporate responsibility. You have a personal and corporate responsibility to help hold one another accountable. Looking back at the story of Achan, uh, in Achan's story, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, before he even gets into the story, verse 1, it says, the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. 
It's almost like this Paul Harvey moment. Remember Paul Harvey from the radio? And that's the rest of the story. Right? He starts off in verse 1 by giving you kind of the punchline. God is mad at Israel because somebody sinned. So even right there at the beginning, he establishes this reality that one person messed up, but God's anger burned against the whole community. And then he goes on to tell the rest of the story throughout chapter 7. We know that only Achan was found guilty, yet the whole nation suffered because of it. And so this implies that what Achan did was of a corporate concern, not just an individual concern. As I discussed earlier in the message, that what we do affects others. Because all sin has an impact upon the church body. All the things that we do or don't do either contribute to the health of the body or they contribute to the sickness of the body. Now, most sins that need to be dealt with are best dealt with, as I was talking about, in that personal, maybe one-on-one, one-on-two setting where we're going to find friends that we can trust within a life group relationship. Others will require the involvement of church leadership. Others may even require the entire congregation. For example, there are certain things that I may do in the future that would be sinful and of the nature that it's appropriate for me to stand here and confess that to you. That's part of the reality of being a pastor in the church, a responsibility to the greater body. Not everybody carries that same mantle, but there are certain sins that may exist in my life or in your life that may make that a requirement. But more, most sins happen with it. It can be confessed within the smaller groups that may exist. But some of these larger scale ones that require leadership to get involved are things where a sin that could lead to disunity, uh, something that could be fracturing to the community as a whole, or a sin that publicly damages the reputation of God or his church in the world around us. Because the church is God's plan to reach the world. This is his plan. This is not just a Sunday morning gathering. We gather to worship and to praise God but we are gathered as a body of believers in part because we are his plan. He needs us to be healthy. He needs us to understand that it's not enough to just be together, but we gotta be healthy together and on mission together because we're his plan. He has cast that mantle onto us that we would take the good news of Jesus Christ. We would take the truth that life is better with Jesus now and eternally to the world around us so that they could experience the freedom and the forgiveness that comes from knowing Jesus. And when we're unhealthy, that's at stake too. So the cost is high. For better or worse, we're all in this together. If we are divisive, if we're conflicted, if we're an unhealthy body, we'll have a poor witness. But if we can be a place and continue to be a place where people feel welcomed, where people have this ability and the freedom to share their lives, where they can share their struggles, where they can find that freedom to express those things, where they can find love, if we can be a people that remains unified, that seeks to walk in step with God's plan for us, then he can move forward with us and we will see the fulfillment of that mission in the days ahead. But if we're going to continue to grow in this, we've got to stand against those things that could steal our vitality. So as we close this message today, I just want to do so with a time of prayer. I want to close with a, just a few minutes in prayer here to pray through some of these things to give you a chance to respond, not, not out loud, just in your own heart and to, to God, and then we're going to have the worship team come up and lead us in a song as we close. 
But I want to lead us in just a time of prayer for some of these things, that if there is anything that is even getting a foothold, anything that possibly could start festering, that could steal some life and vitality from us, we just confess it and deal with it today and go forward. So as we close this part of the service, I invite you just to, to bow your heads and, and just pray quietly with me as the worship team comes back up to the platform. And I invite you to begin by just considering if there's any sin in your lives, anything that may have happened in this past week, these past days, that, that, that you know, like the Spirit in you just says, man, that was wrong. You stepped out of line on that. And, and just in your heart, I want to give you a chance to confess that right now. And as we've acknowledged today, these sins, we, we can sometimes feel like we can hide them and just bury them under our tent. And it doesn't affect anybody but me. Nobody knows but me. But our sins will find us out, and the ripple effect can affect the body of believers here. And so just continue praying these prayers of confession, perhaps, where if there's something that you may have done that would affect the body, that could be seen as divisive or fracturing the body or unhealthy to it, let's just, let's just lift those prayers up to God, too. We also talked today about how we need to speak truth in love. And I just want you to pause for a minute now and consider, is there somebody that maybe I spoke truth to but didn't have any love? Or maybe there's somebody I just need to speak truth to. Let's pause for a minute and reflect and give God a chance to speak and say if there's somebody that we need to go talk to in a loving way to deal with something. And finally, looking back to perhaps some of the things that were confessed, these personal sins that were confessed, is there something in that confession that you need to be held accountable for going forward? I just want you to pause and, and pray and, and give God a chance to, to reveal to you maybe a person or, or a couple people that you could engage in who could hold you accountable to not slipping back into those tendencies again. Or somebody that perhaps you need to step up and, and, and speak truth to, but then walk with them a while hold them accountable. Heavenly Father, I just pray over the congregation here. Lord, I know that there are many here who, who have accepted you into their lives and, and have, have sworn that allegiance to walk with you, have, have received your forgiveness and the cleansing that comes with it. But Lord, we know that that promise doesn't mean that we will never struggle and that at times we'll still choose to stray and we'll go our own way. And so God, we confess those things to you. 
God, for any who are here who may not have taken that first step and are, are just feeling a sense that there's something missing in their lives, that there's a love, that there's a freedom, that there's a forgiveness that they have not personally experienced. God, for those people that are here, I just, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to them clearly, that they would know that they need to take that step, that there is a Jesus Christ who loves them, who died for them, and longs to come into their lives, to, to give them freedom, to show them his ultimate love. God, for those people, I pray they would take that step and that they would come forward, follow in the service to meet with our prayer teams at the frontier to, to continue that journey. God, for us as a church body, there are, there are sins of the past that, that we may not even be fully aware of. There may be sins of the past that only a few are aware of. And God, we just pray against those things in this moment right now as a church body to say, God, that we declare those things to be wrong. We declare those things to, to be needed to be cast out from among us that you would move forward with us and not and not hold back in light of those. God, I pray that we would know what it looks like to be a healthy community, ever increasingly so in the days ahead. That you would be honored by our words and by our actions. That you'd be honored by our service. So that, so that the mission that you've entrusted to us, that we would see that that is not an optional thing. That that is the reality and the purpose for which you have brought the body forth, was to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us. May we grab hold of that, have a passion in our hearts for it, Lord, that we may go forth proclaiming your goodness in word and in deed, and that the world may know the name of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.